Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pihkala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the world who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change and other environmental issues. And here we do focus on the emotional life of climate change, something that is not often talked about in public. So it's a little gathering point for that. And um, we are really honored to have a guest who's very experienced in talking about the emotions of climate change. Hi, I'm Linda Bazell from Santa Barbara, California. I'm a psychotherapist and an ecotherapist. Yeah, we're so glad to have Linda. Linda, we've never met in person, but we've interacted over the years, actually going quite a while back, even to the you know, um, eco psychology journal days. So well over a decade. And I know you and Panu have, have worked together as well. So really honored to have you here and get your voice out to maybe a new generation of people that aren't familiar with your work. Um, Panu, do you want to get us started? Yes. Warmly welcome Linda also on my part. I had the great pleasure of talking with Linda a couple of times during the last, last year. Uh, Linda is doing many things and we'll soon ask her more about that, but one is related to the Pacifica Graduate Institute and leading a very interesting interdisciplinary teaching series there where I also also visited and when I was doing my process model of eco-anxiety and ecological grief, which we talked about at an earlier episode of this podcast, then the work by Linda and Sarah Edwards on the so-called waking up syndrome was one of the key resources for that work. So very happy to talk now about several issues, but would you like to start Linda by telling something about your history that how did you end up becoming an eco-therapist in the first place? Well, I'm really happy to be with you both. And it is kind of a strange and long story. Um, I, I used to work in Hollywood and I was director of research for Captain Jacques Cousteau, the ocean explorer on his Antarctic series. So oh, I, I, that's kind of where I got my environmental information. And it was right at the beginning. Cousteau himself had just really realized the mess we're in. At the same time, strangely, I was training to be um, a psychotherapist, a marriage and family therapist. So I was learning systems theory. Well, you would think I would put those two things together, right? This is in the 1970s. No, it took me decades. It really took me decades to figure out they were connected. And it wasn't until the 1990s when that great eco-psychology book came out by Theodore Rozak and his co-writers that I began to realize that these two things really had to come together. And then I kind of, you know, I read a book on ecotherapy by Howard Kleinbell, and then I got into the first email thread. This is the late 1990s with people like Robert Greenway, who was one of the pioneers of wilderness therapy, and John Skull, an amazing psychologist. And I was very annoying to them because I kept saying, I'm a therapist, how do you do it? How do you do it? Therapist, as you know, we're obsessed with 
practical ways of helping people process things. So there was no answer because it was really all about eco-psychology and even eco-philosophy at that point. Mm-hmm. We sort of hadn't pulled this together quite in terms of the therapeutic aspect of it. So a colleague and I, Craig Chalkwist, ended up putting together an anthology called Ecotherapy, Healing with Nature and Mind, and that came out in 2009. So it's been a long a long road. And of course, at the same time, I'm processing this myself emotionally. As the climate situation gets worse and worse, the news gets more upsetting. Um, I'm just like anyone else. I'm not quite knowing what to do. And it wasn't until, you know, we've always had difficulties here in Santa Barbara and California in terms of climate. And it's really very visible here. But it was probably not until 2017 when we had one of our worst fires. And then early 2018, we had a mudslide that killed 23 people in our community. That I kind of moved from beginning to understand eco-anxiety as something that might involve pre-traumatic stress or trauma, which is Lisa, the psychiatrist Lisa Van Susteren's name for this, to actual climate trauma, which is Zewa Woodbury's term for it. And I, it's like when, I, when my colleague and I wrote this, this piece on the waking up syndrome, we were trying to help ourselves and our clients because more and more people were coming into our offices devastated by what they were hearing on the news every day. But for most of us, it was still pre-traumatic stress or eco-anxiety or eco-fear. We hadn't yet gone through the actual traumas that uh, many of us, unfortunately, have gone through since then. So it's been a, a long and interesting journey, and I think there's more to go. This is beautiful. I really uh, appreciate. You know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I guess a scholar or a nerd about all this stuff. So uh, you know, I'm, it's nice to hear all the names of the people that you're talking about and linking all this stuff together. An interesting side note is that we uh, we recently um, interviewed Caroline Hickman, and uh, in the UK, and she also worked as a diver as a scuba diver. And so she, a lot of people wouldn't know that she has this ocean background. And I'm, I'm just very uh, pleasantly surprised about your Jacques, Jacques Cousteau <laughs> link, uh, because that's just so, as Pano and I say over and over, everyone has these, these, these experiences that put them in touch with nature that then position them to do this ecotherapy work. I have to laugh because I was just trying to explain who Jacques Cousteau was to my 16 year old daughter. <laughs> and, you know, she, it was just kind of funny to show her some of the old Jacques Cousteau videos with his, with his cap and his French uh, divers and things like that. So anyway, that's just a... Yes, he was wonderful, very inspiring. Yeah, and then it, it, it got me, I know this totally is a tangent, but it got me into reading about Jacques Cousteau and just how, what a marvelous person that man was and how he invented scuba gear. And he was one of the most you know, influential environmentalists of the 20th century. Uh, and all of the work that he did. So it's just really, it's neat that you have that connection. Speaking of waking up syndrome, that reminds me of uh, the Cousteau t- telling me the story of how he woke up. You know, he was one of the co-inventors of the regulator, which enabled underwater diving of the kind that he did. And he began to get very emotionally upset because he, he, he would say to us, the, the Mediterranean is dying 
because he would go down there and places that he had seen looking really healthy during World War II or slightly after World War II, by the time we knew him in the 1970s, they had been radically degraded. So perhaps he was the first person I ever met who actually went through the waking up syndrome. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And I was struck also when rereading Rachel Carson's Silent Spring about how explicit it is about some of these threat related emotions in relation to the natural world and the environmental crisis. So of course, uh, terms such as eco-anxiety are much more new, um, but the substance uh, is, is there even with these pioneers uh, and there's more to be found when reading the old old texts and watching the old old movies for 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 example and one of the very interesting things in the waking up syndrome uh, is that you describe together with Sarah that there may be people who have a kind of awakening but then sort of try to go back to semi-consciousness after a day awakening because it can be so difficult to live with the knowledge and uh, reality and I, I wondered whether whether you would you would like to co- comment on some of that dynamic well one of the things that Sarah and I discovered was this was not like a one-time waking up but it was this really complex thing that happened to people where they would wake up a little bit and then they'd go back to sleep or then they'd be really angry or they would have some other reaction and it was it was just a cycle of things and um i'm not sure we realized at the time what would be involved with it escalating over the decades as the situation worsened but we were right at the beginning then of really understanding trauma you know sarah is also a psychotherapist as i am and trauma theory was just coming on board we were all getting excited to understand that it took a while for us to actually connect those dots and realize that what we were talking about was a kind of trauma. And that's where uh, the psychiatrist, Lisa Van Susteren, was very helpful to us because she really came up with the wording that helped us see it in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just, just briefly for the listeners. So yes, Waking Up Syndrome, there was a, a paper, an article, came out around 2008 you can still find it online and we'll put it in our link with Sarah Ann Edwards. So we're also shouting out to her, um, Sarah and, um, Linda worked on this and it's essentially this idea that when someone has an epiphany or an awakening about environmental issues, they, they have this waking up syndrome where they can't go back to the old way of thinking. And it can be very destabilizing and make you question all kinds of things. Um, and, that was a thing that people have experienced like Jacques Cousteau in the past. Uh, and many people can point to a waking up syndrome moment that they had, but um, that is now becoming more mainstream with climate change. Many people are having kind of waking up syndromes and it's just good to recognize that term. So that's what we're talking about, but I'll, I'll let you both get back to it. I know you talk about this in your, your classes at Pacifica. I do. <laughs> Yeah, so the other thing that I think was inspirational was the movie The Matrix and the whole concept of taking the red pill, taking the blue pill, where you have the choice. Are you going to stay awake to what you now know about what's happening on the planet? Or are you going to take the blue pill and go back to sleep? 
Of course, it's not that simple, but there was something about that that visual analogy that really struck me that there there's a process um, that you go through. And once you, you wake up to what's happening and it's very complex. And one of the things that's important is you need support in going through that. And that unfortunately took a long time to come online. Therapists didn't know anything about this, didn't know how to be helpful. And it's only quite recently that we're beginning to actually have a whole protocol for helping people process all of the different aspects of the waking up syndrome. Uh, what have been in your mind and experience some of the best practices and most useful methods in, in that kind of work? Well, I take my inspiration from Joanna Macy, who is of course the uh, one of the very first ecotherapists, at least in my view, And um, she says, whatever you do during the great turning, don't even think about doing it alone. And I think that that is real deep wisdom. This this crisis that we're talking about, the poly crisis, the escalating poly, poly crisis, the long emergency, whatever you call it, it's so big. It's really not something one person can deal with on their own, or even in an individual way dealing with their therapist, although that might be helpful. It's much more effective when we deal with this in groups, which is, of course, what Joanna Macy did her whole career, was work with large groups of people, helping them process the information that they were getting or the experiences they were having, and then supporting each other. And that's a great wisdom. Is That's why some of the new things like the Good Grief Network are so important because they involve groups getting together to help each other process what we're living through, what's coming, what's happened, um, and sort of giving our, you know, having support as we deal with a really overwhelming issue. Yeah, it's such a grassroots thing. It, it pops up this, these kinds of, um, I think one way to think about the history of, of eco-psychology and eco-therapy is that it was sort of like a little patches that were happening in different places around the world. And eventually the, the kind of tendrils kind of started linking, linking together. Um, yeah. Um, I want to bring in another, another idea around ecotherapy because it's something that I've heard associated with you, Linda, but it's a, it's a, it's a interesting topic. Um, and I think the way I've heard it described is level one versus level two ecotherapy. What do you, what was, what, how, how would you explain that to people? Do you well, think? those are ideas that I came up with for lack of a better term. And mm. the good news is that there's a new book out um, called Ecotherapy, a Field Guide by two British ecotherapists, David Key and Keith Tudor. And um, they've actually come up with names that I'm starting to use um, in association with this that have been very helpful for me. So what I call level one is basically this idea of using some aspect of the rest of nature as a resource or to make me feel better. So it's, it's sort of me-oriented. It's very anthropocentric. And David Key and Keith Tudor are suggesting we call this the anthropocentric extractive level. So... Uh, that kind of sounds negative, but I don't necessarily view level one as negative. In fact, it's kind of a low-hanging fruit. It's not. It doesn't upset existing healers and practitioners. 
They kind of like the idea that it's just one more tool in their toolkit. Now they can do all these nature connection things. But it's not breaking apart or exploding their worldview, the existing Western psychological worldview. So this is level one. It is very anthropocentric. It is all about me. But I view it as a possible gateway or portal to helping existing practitioners segue, make a segue into eco-psychology and eco-therapy. And level two, or what Key and Tudor call ecocentric uh, reciprocal, that level, is where your consciousness expands. So you, your worldview explodes and you realize that you are part of the whole of nature. You're not in charge, that old Western view that humanity is somehow separate from and superior to the rest of nature, which that big lie is actually the source, in my opinion, of all of our problems. So the recovery from that becomes really important and getting into this level too. And lately I've been thinking of this in terms of psychedelic therapy, that there's some kind of an analogy here that in the beginning you think, well, it's just another tool, right? It'll work on depression or whatever it is. And it's just going to be one more tool in the therapist or the doctor's toolkit. And it won't change anything about how we understand the world. Except, of course, psychedelics are not like that in the same way that nature is not like that. That deep exposure to the rest of nature or an experience with psychedelics tends to literally blow your mind open. And suddenly you really do understand things in a much deeper way. And that's, I think, what's exciting about it. And part of what my calling at this point is, is to get this information to as many existing and potential healer type people uh, or caregivers in the world as I can because they already exist. And if they used this more expanded way of looking at healing something like climate trauma or environmental trauma, that they're already in a system, in a, in a situation where they can affect thousands of people their clients and whoever they teach or whoever they speak with. So that's my little idea of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. How does that land for you, Panu? What does that bring up for you? Yes, that's very interesting. And, and of, of course, there might be steps between one, one and two where people sort of start moving towards more reciprocal and more holistic holistic views and practices and uh, what are Linda in your experience some of the things which may help people to move toward a more comprehensive uh, let's say level two ecotherapy in this sense well one of the things that uh, we've discovered is the more time you spend in direct contact with some aspect of the rest of nature the more nature becomes the therapist so it, that's one of the differences between um, conventional psychotherapy and ecotherapy is that ecotherapists, or at least many of us, don't view ourselves as the big healers. We view ourselves almost as catalysts encouraging the healing and helping people process what happens. But nature has, um, of course, this huge mind of her own. And as you spend more and more time in direct contact with any aspect of the rest of nature, that's transformative and it's profoundly healing. Yeah, that reminds me of the, my old wilderness therapy days and being, and we would say that, you know, our job was 
really just to keep keep the keep the clients safe and warm while the the, the big healer does their does her job or does its job. So it's really, you know, creating these these places where people can be in deep direct contact with nature for extended amounts of time, just sitting back and let that process unfold. Um, yeah, that's great. Yes, nature is the ultimate therapist, and more of us are coming to that that realization. Yeah. What else, Panu? Panu, how does this dovetail with some of the work that you've been doing, like the process model and various things? Yes, it certainly resonates in many, many ways. I I know, know, Linda, that you have also written uh, kind of review articles or book chapter about various kinds of eco-therapies. And we have had many people visiting our podcast who practice various kinds of methods and we do various things ourselves also. But but would you like to say something about that spectrum, uh, that quite colorful range of various ecotherapies? I've, I've written about this, calling them the many ecotherapies, because there really, of course, aren't any specific ones. When you think about it, any, as, as I've been talking about, any connection with nature, whatever aspect of nature that is, can be profoundly healing. And we're right in the middle of a very exciting period where we're trying more and more things. I mean, animal-assisted uh, psychotherapies or ecotherapies are really exciting. And interestingly, they're nothing new. I was shocked to realize that Freud in his office had Jofi, his dog. It's like therapists have known some of this stuff a long time. And I used to work in the 1970s in, in my therapy room with my dog, Pookie. And I was not an ecotherapist at that point. I had no idea that I was actually practicing animal-assisted therapy. And of course, there's all kinds of things. I mean, whatever aspect of nature you can think of, somebody's out there right now experimenting with how is this working, whether it's gardening or whether it's wilderness work. Um, I mean, there's so many different ways of doing this. There's even somatic therapies are now being re-understood as ecotherapies as we're dealing with this wild nature inside of us. And then there's wild psyche, the parts of the psyche that are not controlled by the ego, whether it's dreams or any other thing where you're not in control as the human being. Um, these are, there's just so much exciting stuff going on. I can barely keep up with it. I, I recently was part of a uh, a series at Pacifica Graduate Institute where we have 13 speakers all talking about the cutting edge work that they're doing in the field. And it's so radically different. You know, Dr. Rosalind Watts is doing psychedelic, psychedelic ecotherapy. I'd never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just wonderful stuff going on and lots of people. Yeah. And so listeners, you can take, you can take this in. And so this, this distinction between sort of the status quo therapeutic ideas, which are not, I would not dismiss any of them because all the different therapy, the existing therapy orientation, psycho, psychoanalytic and gestalt, they all have tools uh, to offer. And then, yeah, they can be practiced in kind of a, maybe an unconscious kind of a way of like the status quo of society. And, uh, and they can also be, you know, practiced in a way that's open to this more larger ecocentric, uh, ecocentric view um so there's a there is a range and i like my idea of uh being a client climate cosmopolitan where you can move through be between different subcultures of people hard science people and more spiritual people and more activist people and 
you know, um, artists and various things and moving between those groups and working, working together versus, you know, setting up bunkers kind of thing between different ones. But um, that can be challenging. So Linda, what, what do you think are some of the challenges of this work? I, I, I feel like as people, one, one thing I observe, I observe this in the new climate conscious world. It reminds me of the eco-psychology world. And even before that, the deep, deep ecology world is um, people can kind of battle each other and sort of, I think as they're getting these, after a waking up syndrome, you can be quite tender and quite kind of insecure with your new knowledge. And then it's sometimes different views can be threatening. How do you, how do you, how do you navigate that kind of thing? I think the good news is that almost every arena or style or type of ecotherapy, or I mean, psycho psychotherapy is in some phase of greening itself up. Mm. So the Gestalt people are going at it from the Gestalt way, and they're, each each group that does that enriches the whole mm -hmm. because they come up with really interesting ideas. You know, we we just recently talked about somatics. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, somatic therapists have so much to teach us. You know, what about the microbiome? What about all the the creatures living on our skin? It's like we have it. They're helping us really re-understand and absorb all of this material. So I don't think any of these are oppositional with each other. I think they each have something rich to offer, especially if they're doing their own greening up work within their own field. I know that the Jungians are green, doing a lot of interesting green stuff in that very Jungian way. That's very exciting. And of course, a lot of art therapists are discovering what happens when you take art therapy outside, what happens when you really include more and more nature connection in something like art therapy. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Warm thanks for for all, all that. And uh, I'd like to return to the very practical things you said about Santa Barbara and the various impacts that are happening there. That it used to be more, uh, you know, expectancy and now there's things which have really, really happened sometimes in striking ways. So how do you see the situation in, in Santa Barbara? Are there grassroots level things that people have done either to respond to these more longer term, sometimes, you know, anticipatory elements or then the more direct impacts? One thing that happened here in one of our more recent oil spills, we seem to have had a whole series of them was that as usual, the whole community was in grief. There was no getting around it. I went to a, um, a, a press conference where the reporters had tears coming down their faces, asking the questions, and nobody thought that maybe the journalists actually needed some ecotherapy. So anyway, a group of us got together and we created an eco-grief group that we held on the beach. And of course, the beaches were being affected and the sea animals and sea birds were affected. And we just kind of made up our own process as we were there, just honoring the ocean, honoring the feelings of the people who were in total um, active traumatic grief from what was happening to us, uh, grief over how many times this had happened to us. Our community has had such a series of ongoing disasters. And it was very, very helpful. You know, we did really simple things. We just went around the group and each shared our feelings. Um, we, we, we gathered up a stone or a shell 
And then at the end of the session, we went down to the water as kind of a a healing gesture, however small, and we would put that into the ocean, the surf, as it was coming up. Mm. I mean, I think this reminds me a little bit of Treby Johnson's work about healing wounded places. Yeah, It's very powerful therapy, both for the people and hopefully for the rest of nature as well. It's also inspiring, and it brings the community together, which, as I've talked about from Joanna Macy's work, that's the key. And it's actually where I see the cutting edge of ecotherapy going, is towards community eco-psychology, community ecotherapy. Unfortunately, a lot of ecotherapy so far has been fairly individualistic. And that, of course, is because that's Western psychotherapy. That's our model. So this is a growth point, I think, right now for both eco-psychology and ecotherapy, is to do more and more and more group work and community work, building community building eco-resilience in our communities, and really supporting each other. And that's where the hopefulness comes in. One really important thing that happened after our lethal mudslides in um, in 2018 was the formation of a, what they called a bucket brigade. It was people spontaneously coming together, old people to young people to people from wherever, would come together, bring a shovel, and we were trying to literally dig up people so they wouldn't die. I can't think of anything more traumatic than that. And this, um, the Bucket Brigade really bonded with each other emotionally, and there was tremendous community feeling. And this happened, you have to understand, in Montecito, which is one of the most wealthy areas in our country. And it didn't matter. That disappeared. There were people coming out, everyone, whether it was, you know, someone who had very little or someone who had a whole lot. And we were working together as a community, doing every single thing we could to dig up someone so they wouldn't die, including animals. So there's so many things I think people are going to spontaneously come up with, as this community did in terms of creating the Bucket Brigade. By the way, the Bucket Brigade is still going strong. Every time there's a new whiff of wildfire or there's some other community thing, they've been putting in paths all around where there were no places to walk. They're just, they go up and down the coast to other communities that are in trouble. It's really a powerful movement. Mm. Mm. It's beautiful. It reminds me of uh, the... Uh, Scott Ardway, we had interviewed Scott Ardway, the composer, and he had did the end of end of rain symphony, which which uh, looked at a community in California that was recovering from wildfire, and he created a symphony of the voices of the community, a, a kind of a artistic work of resilience. So we'll, we'll put a link to that in our in our show notes. But this is a great place to great and and you know realistically on boots on the ground, hopeful point to end on in our conversation that that community level of bonding I'm, unfortunately it's a trauma bonding but then it turns into this larger sense of meaning and cohesion and resilience that's beautiful linda uh well, i want to thank you so much for joining us we could talk more but this was a great survey this will be helpful for therapists uh and also inspiring i think for the public to know that people are, are working on this into different voices so Thank you very much. It's lovely to talk with both of you. Well, warm thanks, Linda. It's been great having you and very, 
uh, empowering examples from, from your life and work. So, one thanks for that. Thank you. Best to uh, all of you and to our listeners and all. Take care. Take care. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.